Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish Commentary. Let's open in prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King. Lord, we're grateful that we have just come through uh, another special time, at least among uh, Christians and Jews who are returning to the roots of their faith, namely the Festival of Purim. And Lord, we are reminded over and over again as we studied through the text as we read through um, uh, the relevant passages that are related to Purim, uh, whatever um, passages our, our, um, our uh, congregations were studying and, and joined one another as we uh, just celebrated this time together. Lord, we thank you that um, you have preserved us as a people, that, you have, that you're continuing to raise us up as uh, lights, as salt, as uh, witnesses in this earth even as you did so under the immense pressure, Lord, as we read through the book of Esther, and realize that it's the homins of this world who are trying to destroy the people of God. And we know that even though, uh, as we were reminded as we read through the book of Esther this year, we're reminded that even though sometimes your name is not mentioned directly, even though sometimes we, we cannot see your um, uh, direct involvement, we know that uh, indirectly you are behind the scenes sometimes. As the sages say, Haster Panim, you, you hid your face uh, directly, but we know that it was you who was uh, preserving uh, the people in the text. We know if it weren't for you that the people of, that Esther was praying for, that indeed fasting for, uh, indeed the, uh, the, the, the Jewish people, we know that they would have perished under the evil hand of, of uh, Haman and uh, those who sought to destroy the Jewish people. And so thank you, Lord, for preserving us for saving us, for keeping us under your power. Uh, Lord, we ask that you'll uh, continue to help us uh, press through the book of Galatians as we're going kind of verse by verse and uh, paragraph by paragraph. Uh, give me a continued interest and insight into the text. Uh, help the readers and the students that are joining along with me to uh, engage the, the, the scriptures first and foremost and to pray and press into the Spirit first and foremost, not to rely on what I say per se, but to rely on what you have said first and foremost. For indeed, that's where the blessing lies, and that's where uh, that's where lives will be changed as they uh, avail themselves of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I pray that you'll be with those who weren't able to make it tonight, but you'll just uh, keep them safe um, and continue to bless them where they're at. Uh, we'll, we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory in Yeshua's name. Amen. 
Okay, uh, for those of you who are with me live in Skype, uh, should have screen sharing going on. Uh, we're in Genesis 15 for our liturgy. Let's date stamp the recording since this is a week after Purim. We skipped last week, for those of you who are listening to this commentary, um, say on the website or you're subscribed to the podcast, we skipped a week. But this week is week 56 as we're plugging along. We missed last week because of Purim. And we're just picking up the study again this week. Date stamp uh, says this is March 18th for most of you, uh, 2017. And um, for those of you, uh, just before we get into the uh, liturgy, for those of you who would like to follow the study and maybe you miss week after miss a few weeks here and there, head on over to a few different places and you can catch the commentary. Either uh, say my website at www tetzetorah.com t-e-t-z-e-t-o-r-a-h.com and right on the homepage along the top there's a link that says Galatians Commentary you can click that and all of the information is there or if you've got iTunes installed on your computer Mac or PC compatible um, just head on over to iTunes store and uh, navigate to the podcast section and then um, search my name in the search uh, search field, either Ariel Hanavi or you can type in the word Galatians and I think you should be able to find the podcast there. You can follow along. Or lastly, um, head on over to my congregational website at www.graftedin.com and um, right along the top there's some drop-down menus. Uh, one of them I think says commentaries. Click on that, or podcasts I think it says. Click on that and scroll down to probably either the more lessons or maybe the Galatians commentary. I can't remember if there's a link uh, for either one. And you should be able to find, find the information there as well. Okay, without further ado, let's just read the comment, read the, uh, the liturgy first. We won't have a long study tonight. I'm going to be finishing up this kind of short foray into uh, Abraham's interaction with God in Genesis 15, particularly where um, Paul... Uh, uh, quotes the passage from Genesis 15:6, 6, uh, speaking of Abraham, and he believed in the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And we're going uh, to kind of finish up what we've been talking about, how that Abraham's dialogue with God is probably more than meets the eye, and rightly so. And I'll explain why I think we need to read it that way as we get along. So here's the uh, liturgy for tonight. Genesis 15:6 is the passage that Paul's going to be quoting. We're just going to read the first six verses like we've been doing. Verse 1, this is out of the ESV, the, the version I've chosen to kind of adopt uh, for the, uh, the study. Uh, quote, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, and we're going to focus on this, I, this, this phrase, Lord God, as most of you know, in the, in the English, it's trying to render something very peculiar in the Hebrew. We'll look at that in a moment. O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, um, behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. 
end quote. And we'll just stop there with the first six verses. Okay, let's jump over to the Hebrew and see what uh, we've got. Give me a moment. Let me check Skype. I saw some, I noticed some activity, and I wanted to see what's going on. All right. Okay, it looks like some of my students are trying to, uh, trying to jump in there, but maybe Skype might be kicking them out. All right. Uh, let's read the Hebrew. Um, this time, I don't think I'll use the interlinear. I think I'll just jump straight over to, I think I'll jump straight over to the Westminster Leningrad Codex and read it straight from there. Okay, so for those of you who are on the screen, you should be able to see I've got the Hebrew pulled up there. All right, starting in verse 1, it reads, and remember for those who can't read Hebrew, we're starting on the right side since Hebrew reads right to left. Uh, verse 1 reads, Achar hadrim ha'ele haya devar Adonai El Avram, Bamachaze Limor Al Tira Avram, Anochi Magain Lach Sakarha Sakarha Harbe Meud. And verse 2 Vayomer Avram, Adonai Hashem, and notice in the Hebrew, Adonai Hashem is kind of peculiar. We'll talk about that a little bit. Adonai Hashem Ma Titen Li, Vaanochi Holek. Ariri uven meshek beitihu da meshek elietzer. Verse 3. Vayomer Avram hin li lo natata zara vahine ven beiti yoresh oto. Verse 4. Vahine devaradonai elive lemor lo yras chaze ki im asher yetze. Mimeechahu yiyascha. I'm sorry, yirascha. Verse 5. Vayotse oto ha chutza vayomer habet na ha shamaima usfor ha kochavim im tuchal lispor otam vayomer. Ah, yes. Vayomer lo ko yie zarcha. And the final verse that we're going to uh, we're going to see show up in Galatians a few more times is Vehemin ba Adonai vayachshaveha lo tzedaka, and that last phrase uh, and he believed in the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. This first word in the Hebrew vehemin uh, is where we get our English word Amen, and the and the Greek word Amen. Uh, it's just a transliteration of actually the Hebrew, ve-he-emin. He-emin, uh, uh, from the root word aman, means to make steady. Uh, for instance, when Moshe was uh, doing battle with the armies of uh, the, the enemies of the Lord, and he held up his hands, and as he held up his hands, the people of Israel prevailed. And when he l- dropped his hands, the people of Israel were being defeated. And so I think it was uh, Joshua and Hur, I believe, who steadied his hands, one on one side, one on the other, right? And they held up his hands. And the Hebrew word for steadied his hands is the same root word, aman, uh, to hold up, to, to make steady, or to, to, to kind of strengthen of sorts. So uh, Abraham believed in the Lord, and it was credited to him, as lo, or unto, Tzedakah, righteousness. And we're going to find out as we read the passage out of Galatians, its counterpart. 
we're going to find that Paul believes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, therefore we should too, that verse 6 is Moshe giving us the indicator that this was kind of the moment that God, to use 21st century Christianese, this is the moment that Abraham got saved, in essence. God credited to him his righteousness. God um, brought him into a saving relationship with him. Not that Abraham didn't have faith before that. He most certainly did have faith. But perhaps his faith is um, birthed uh, into a saving type of faith. It's the zenith of the faith. And there's this, 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 really this dialogue going on with not just God, but the, uh, the, the word of the Lord, the Devarar Adonai. So let's talk about this Devarar Adonai and the exchange after we read the Greek liturgy, the, Hebrew, the, the New Testament. All right, jump over to Galatians chapter 3. Looks like my other students were able to join in again. Yeah, there we go. All right. Um, Galatians chapter 3, out of the ESV, we're just going to read the first six verses, just like we did out of the Hebrew passage. Uh, Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. And the final pasuk, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, end quote. And remember what I've been um, suggesting all along for those of you who are serious Bible students, in my opinion, reading the whole of Galatians chapter 3, after reading Genesis 15, reading the whole of Galatians chapter 3, along with Romans chapter 4, is a very good suggestion. Because I think that the two passages in the New Testament complement one another perfectly. To be sure, Paul uses Genesis 15.6 in both passages. Because he's using Abraham as the example, as the model of faith for believers, both Jew and Gentile, both then and now. And we'll see why in a bit. Okay, let's read the, um, the Greek. Uh, let's jump over to to the Nestle 1904 Greek New Testament, which is a very nice version to read. Let's see. Okay, so for those of you on the screen, I hope you can see the Greek there. Um, this time I don't have the interlinear going up, so you're just going to have to bear with me if you can't read the Greek. Verse 1 reads, O anaitoi galatai tishumas abaskunen, hois kat aphthalmus Jesus Christos proigrafe estoromenos. Verse 2 Tutamanan thelo mathen afhumun ex ergo namu to pnuma labate e ex akois pistios. Verse 3. Autos anaitoi este enaxamenoi pnumati nun sarki epitelesta. Verse 4. Tu salta epathete eke e ge kai eke. And those are the questions there. If indeed it was in vain. Verse 5, ho un epikorogon humento pneuma kai in ergon dunames en human ex ergonamu e ex akois pistios. And verse 6, the final verse that quotes from Genesis 15, 6, kathos abraham epistusin to theo kai eulogisthe auto ace decaiusunane. And we've talked about this in the past, how this last, um, um, a word here in the Greek, dikaiosunane, is 
Paul's uh, Paul's favorite term, uh, righteousness, credited to him as righteousness. It's actually the first time he uses it in the book of Galatians here. Formerly he used it uh, as a, a, a adjective, righteous. Uh, um, how does one become right? I'm sorry. Uh, does righteousness come through the law or things like that? Um, and now he's using it in a slightly different way. I think this is the noun version here, Dekaiosune. Okay, let's turn to the commentary. And as I mentioned, it's not going to be a very long study tonight. Um, we'll see what happens. What we are talking about is this little excursus, as it were, into Abraham. And uh, on one sense, it really is an excursus. It's not critical, per se, in this junction of reading through Galatians that we have this much background inside look into what's going on with Abraham in Genesis 15. But I think there is a case to be made um, that as Christians, as believers, uh, that we need to definitely see Genesis 15, 6, the way that Paul, I think, is using it in his letters. And this is the, and here's here's the point, namely, I just kind of throw it out there, put it on the table, and, and try to hit the nail on the head. In Christian circles, in, 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 in um, New Testament circles, or in apostolic uh, uh, belief circles, as it were, in other words, in the fullness of time, Paul read through the, the, the Torah, uh, the Tanakh, and he understood with eyes opened by Messiah that, uh, eyes opened by the Spirit of God, that Messiah was actually the central feature of the Torah. Prior to that, as a traditional Jew, an unsaved Jew, he was blinded to the fact that Messiah was the central feature of God's dealings with man, and therefore Paul couldn't really understand um, how to fully be in covenant relationship with God. He had a physical relationship to with God via the covenants, via circumcision, being, via being uh, connected to the people of Israel. Uh, of course, he was, he, was, he was born Jewish, you know, of Hebrew of Hebrews, as he describes himself in Philippians. So we know that he understood the covenant responsibilities on a, on a physical level because he was circumcised, his parents circumcised him. And we know that he strove to be obedient to the Torah as, as his responsibility entailed. And we also know that he likely knew that if he kept his end of the bargain, that is, if he kept the Torah, that God would bless him because the Torah speaks that way. It uses the language of blessing if you will keep it. But he probably didn't fully understand how that true belief in God must be um, must be birthed as one uh, comes to a knowledge of Messiah in a personal way. So... We see then that when he uses Genesis 15, 6 in, in his argument with Abraham against the influencers of his day, um, we see that he's turning the argument on his head. And, and again, the way to see it, if I can just be painfully clear, is that Paul is actually reading Genesis 15, 6 with the eyes of a believer. When, when, when Paul reads that, that um, it was credited to his account as righteous, speaking of Abraham, Paul understands that this is a moment of salvation as Abraham is interacting not only with God in a generic way, but acting with uh, interacting with God in a covenantal sense that includes the, 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 the focus of the promise of a son and indeed the interaction with the word of the Lord. And so I think there's enough information there, not only from Genesis 15, 6, but also from Paul's letters for us, for us as Christians to make the conclusion that, that, Abraham was interacting with a, a pre-incarnate Yeshua, the word of the Lord, the word made flesh, the word that, that 
that was God and is God. The word of the Lord, the Devar Adonai, the Memra in, in ancient rabbinic writings, who is God but yet is a, a separate agent of God. A, a very uh, nice, uh, um, I should say, correlation between uh, the, the John 1, 1 and one fourteen passages that we read about so often. So, to see this in my commentary, I got, I'm going to back up just um, maybe um, two paragraphs right here. Uh, this quote from Rick Spurlock, and then we'll finish the commentary with my own final two paragraphs, which is a quote from Tim Haig. So basically, most of tonight's study will be quotes, one from Rick Spurlock and one from Tim Haig. So, backing up two paragraphs into Spurlock's commentary, we read this, quote, When we get to Genesis 15:2, the translators have a problem. The actual word Adonai is used in the text next to the holy name. So we've got A-D-O-N-A-I in Hebrew, showing up right next to YHVH, which is, would be a problem if they followed their translation consistently, the translators, we'd have to say like Lord, capital, we'd have to say capital, I'm sorry, lowercase, uh, let's try this again, we'd have to say capital L, lowercase O-R-D, and then capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is kind of strange to most readers, Lord, Lord. Instead, we ended up with Lord God, or things like that, or uh, uh Adonai God, something like that. So Rick Rick brings uh, this feature out in his commentary. This is a, what we call a scribal tradition of circumlocution, which is word substitution. Remember, Rick is under the impression, and I I, I think he's um, I think uh, I've spoken Rick about this. I think he's uh, credible for saying this, that the original text uh, was switched by the Masoretic uh, scribes. Instead of saying Adonai God, it really said Yahweh Yahweh. And that was one too many Yahwehs for most uh, Masoretes. So they, they felt it was their responsibility to change it for the readers. Thus we have this whole concept of kerekativ. What you read, uh, what, what is written versus what you read. In other words, what you speak out loud versus what you read. Okay, Rick goes on to say, What is the significance of this word arrangement? Speaking of Lord God. Um, this is the first time this word combination is used in scriptures. In Genesis 15, uh, I think it's 2 where we first see Abraham address God as Lord God. Uh, this word combination is used in other places in the scriptures, but not very often. Uh, in fact, we see it a lot in, in 2 Samuel, where David's having a dialogue with God about his dynasty. Um, we need to investigate to see if there's some connection between these passages and if it is a messianic connection. So, that quote is from uh, Richard Spurlock, Messiah Unveiled, which is available at his website at bereansonline.org. Uh, I pulled that from page 34 and 35. Okay, now let's finish up my own commentary. This is my own; These are my own words now. What are we to make of this exchange of names with God and Abraham, and how does it relate to Yeshua and the Memra? Remember from last week? Go back and get the recording if you don't. Memra is the Aramaic term that's given, supplied by the ancient Jewish sages, to describe what is otherwise described in the text as the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. And if you read through the text very carefully and uh, through uh, the Torah, you'll notice that the angel of the Lord plays roles and responsibilities that are nearly identical to God himself. He speaks in God's name. He doesn't forgive people in that sense. Uh, he won't forgive you if you disobey him, uh, meaning you have to be in a covenant relationship with him for, to receive his blessing. Um, he is uh, a spokesman for God, but he's more than that. He can actually speak 
on be, on God's behalf and yet speak in first person. And so the, the it, it was no accident, I think, that the ancient Jewish sages uh, uh, gave this nickname to the angel of the Lord, Memra. And Memra, if you read through the Targums, which are the ancient Aramaic translations of the of the uh, of the Torah, uh, the ancient Aramaic translations that were circulating in Yeshua's day, then you'll find, and they're available today. Just do a, a Google search for Targum, T-A-R-G-U-M, and there's a couple of well-known versions that you can encounter: Targum Ankalos, Targum uh, Neophyti, etc. You can you can buy them at book, Bible bookstores as well. But pick up a copy of the Targum and read through the passages that would normally say the word of I'm sorry that would normally say the angel of the Lord, and you'll find that the Targums describe the Memra, the Memra, the Memra is this agent of the Lord that's so closely related with the Lord as to be equated with the Lord and yet not quite the Lord. So it's 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 the Lord incarnate. Hint hint hint. It's the Lord in visible manifestation. Hint hint hint. It's the Lord interacting with man on a level that man doesn't de- isn't destroyed by the glory of this this um, this uh, what do we call it? This this theophany. Hint hint hint. And I keep saying hint 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 because the Christians read through those passages and they say, oh, here's Yeshua. Here's a pre-incarnate Jesus, right? This is God showing up, uh, to, showing himself to man, but in the person of the Lord, person of Yeshua, the person of the Messiah. And that seems to make the most sense of the text. So I suggest, and I, I say this under the guidance of the apostolic scriptures that we just read about from Paul, I think that the memory of Yahweh that appeared to Avraham in such a way as to sh- allow Avraham to address him as a servant would address his visible flesh and blood master in face-to-face reverence and respect. Who do I say this is? Um, I think that Abraham saw a man when he says, Lord God. Did he see a man? We, we don't know for sure. We do know he did see a man in later on in Genesis 18 at the Oaks of Mamre when he interacts with God. We, he interacts with the three visitors who show up at his tent and have a dialogue with he and Sarah about their son, Isaac, who's going to be born in one short year. We know that he sees a man there. And we know later on that one of those men is the Lord because the text tells us. So we can say safely there that, again, that this is a pre-incarnate um, uh, uh, interaction with, with Yeshua because no man can see God and live. So, so here in Genesis 15, did Avram see a man? Did he see the invisible Yahweh? I can't be dogmatic either way, since the biblical theophanies are are often shrouded in mystery. Um, but my dog, by my gut feeling, I say in my commentary, is that Avram saw the pre-incarnate Lord Yeshua with his natural eyes, and yet addressed him as Yahweh. He says Adonai. He says Adonai Lord, which is what the Masoretes want us to read Adonai in the Hebrew, and then. Yahweh, Adonai Yahweh, if I were to read the Hebrew emphatically. So he says Yahweh Yahweh or Adonai Yahweh, and um, it's the word of Lord, the Devar Adonai, uh, that he has this interaction with. It's it's this sudden, the Hine, that we talked about in the Hebrew last week as well. I, I keep saying last week, but I mean la- week 55's recording. Um, go back and listen to it if you're not quite sure what I'm referring to. So, uh, you know, the sages today, the Jewish rabbis and the teachers, the, the, the Talmudists, they're going to tell us, no, it, this isn't some Jesus figure that shows up. This was just the word of the Lord. This was just the angel of the Lord. But we're going to say exactly. The angel of the Lord, the word of the Lord is is Jesus. He's Jesus. He's Jesus incarnate before he, he stepped on earth and had the name Jesus. He's Because we know that the word is eternal. The word 
according to John 1.1 1, 1 and John 1.14, is Yeshua who was with God and is God and was made flesh and dwelt among us. So um, we just we just put the pieces together using the Apostolic Scriptures as our final guide on the matter. But it's not entirely unthinkable, uh, and in fact it's not entirely unfair to give the sages credit for saying, no, this isn't really God, this is actually the angel of the Lord, or this is the word of the Lord, because I think that's that's really what's going on. So we're really saying the same thing, they're just not using Jesus' name there. But there's a reason why I think this is significant for our study. Let me finish this uh, uh, reading what I have to say, and then I'll make a brief, um, some brief uh, uh, extra thoughts that I have to say that I didn't put in my commentary. Here's what I say in my commentary. One thing's for sure, and this is according to what Paul tells us. Avram believed the unbelievable, and it was to the word of the Lord, the memra, that he addressed his objective faith. Surely, surely Hashem saw into the heart of the patriarch, and recognize the appropriation of the choices that lay before him, right? Abraham was giving, was being given this glimpse of future promises. God is showing him the stars. God's telling him that your offspring is going to be as numerous as the stars. And yet Abraham didn't even have one. He didn't even have one child yet. Um, he, he didn't have, uh, I mean, he had Isaac, but I'm sorry, he had uh, um, uh, Ishmael. But that's not what... What, Abraham knew that this was not really the promise that God was speaking about. And so Abraham's kind of suggesting, well, is it going to be Eliezer of Damascus? What's going on, Lord? I don't have any children yet that are that are my, my covenant children. Who is this promise going to fall on after I die? So Abraham believed God, and God saw into his heart. What's more, as I say, only the Lord himself can supernaturally open the eyes of a man to allow him to make a choice between choosing his Messiah or rejecting him. We call this monergism, fancy theological term that describes God actually stepping into the, into the depraved state of a man and giving this man the faith necessary to even make the choice to receive the Son of God. What do we read in Ephesians? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If you read that verse in the Greek, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. What's the that in the verse? If you read it in the Greek, you'll see that the Granville-Sharp rule is being applied here. The Granville-Sharp is a rule where we have multiple nouns that are actually then clarified by a single pronoun. Um, for by grace, grace is a noun, are you saved, safe is a noun, through faith, faith is a noun. And that, that we have a singular pronoun referring to three different nouns, which means all of them are really God's work. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. I'm sorry, the it, the it, the, the pronoun there, it. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Shouldn't it say these are the gifts of God? If we were to clean up the grammar. But the translators got it right when they, when I think it's the KJV that I'm quoting here from memory. It is the gift of God because the all three are one gift. There, this idea that God is the one who grants us the faith uh, the, the the grace necessary to even have faith. By grace are you saved. The grace, the salvation, and the faith are all from God. And yet we are the ones who makes the choice, right? Go figure that. That's the paradox in and of itself. So um, Tim Haig is going to provide us with a summary thought to our study here. And so this will close out this section on this little uh, excursus on Genesis 15.6. And then we'll be poised next week to turn to Genesis 
I'm sorry, to, to I said Genesis 15.6. This will end this little excursus on Genesis 15.6, and this will close out the commentary on Galatians 3.6, and we'll be poised next week to start with Galatians 3.10, where we're going to turn again towards this works of the law and things like that and talk about um, this idea of uh, how one can come out from underneath the curse of the law. It'll be an extremely interesting uh, commentary, I, I promise you. All right, let's see what Teheg has to say about uh, Genesis 15.6 and this um, in interchange. His thoughts uh, read as follows, quote, The response of God is said once again to come via his word. This is Tim Haig talking about, um, I think it's, let me look at where what the footnote is. Tim Haig, Parashah 12, yeah, TorahResource.com, page 3. This is from his, his weekly Torah portions. Um, uh, which are available from his website. So this is his commentary on Genesis 15.6. Quote, The response of God is said once again to come via his, quote, word, and quote. The word of the Lord came to him saying, right? Genesis 15.2, which we read in Hebrew. God assures Abram that he will indeed have a son, and then he takes Abram outside to give him a sign of the promise he has just made. But the sign itself requires faith. The sign that... You know, there's going to be uh, your descendants will be as the stars of the sea, of the stars of the sky. You know that itself requires faith. For God shows Abraham the stars and declares, "Quote: So shall your descendants literally see the zarah that we read in Hebrew. So shall your zarah be, and its seed in the singular." Not only would Abraham have a son, we read in the text, but the descendants of Abraham would endure from generation to generation, so that in the end. The offspring of Abraham would be beyond counting. So this is really a fantastic promise. God's not only telling Abraham, hey, you're going to have a son. Don't worry. I'm going to give you one. Don't worry. That's not what God says to Abraham. God actually says, not only am I going to give you a son, but your descendants shall be as numerous as the stars of the sky. Can you count the stars, Abraham? No. That's how many your your descendants are going to be. And I believe there are two ways to understand this promise of multiplicity, as I call it. One, in the natural, we're going to see, is that God is giving promising physical children to Abraham. In other words, the physical descendants of, of Abraham would, inclu would include primarily uh, the sons of Israel, right? The, the 12 tribes that are born to Abraham, the 12 sons who are born to, 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 to Jacob, who are then uh, who are then to become the twelve tribes of Israel later on? So we see that this promise of multiplicity is going to be fulfilled on a natural level. But there's also, as we know, a spiritual dimension, an everlasting dimension to this promise. So we I like to describe it this way: there is a limited slash temporal aspect to the covenant promise, and there's an eternal slash spiritual component to the covenant promises as well. And that spiritual component or everlasting uh, component is the part where we see spiritual seed, which would bring in the uh, Gentiles into the picture, uh, meaning Gentile believers. Not just Gentiles generically, Gentiles without faith in Messiah, but specifically Gentiles who exercise the same faith as Abraham, and thus faith in Messiah, thus they become sons of Abraham. And we see this all fleshed out in Romans chapter 4. All right, let's keep reading um, uh, Tim Haig's commentary. 
We're on the top of page 111, for those of you who are uh, reading along the PDF version of my commentary. Tim Hegg reads, quote, But would God's word, the, his promise of a son, be enough for Abram? After all, it had been some time, perhaps as much as 20 years, by the sage's reckoning, since the initial promise had been given. Recall that, um, as, I die, as I interject, recall that God had started making promises way back in Genesis 12. And here we are all the way up to Genesis chapter 15, and we still don't have any children, and yet this, this lengthy time period has passed. It's not like God showed up in Genesis chapter 12, and it's only a few years later, or a few months or weeks later, that he's having this dialogue with the word of the Lord. No, it's actually been a long time, right? And Abraham's getting old. So, the initial promise had been given quite a while ago, and there was still no son. Haig goes on to say, Sarai was still barren. In fact, God's word was enough for Abram, as the next verse, which is the one that we're highlighting, Genesis 15, 6, it indicates, quote, and he believed in the Lord, end quote. So Moses, it seems, according to Heg, has reserved this clear statement of Abram's faith for the moment when the promised son is specifically the focus of attention. He believed in the Lord. Of course he believed in the Lord way back in Genesis 12 because he got up and got out, right? He got up and out of his land and away from his people and started heading towards a land that God would show him. Clearly, Abraham had faith in God. But there's something different and unique about the faith that Moshe is describing in Genesis 15 that caused Paul to lift this passage out of Genesis 15:6 and include it predominantly in his letters in both Galatians and Romans. And that's the point we're trying to highlight tonight. Abram's faith was uh, uh, being spoken of in this intense dialogue, not only with the word of the Lord, the Devarad Adonai, but also at the precise moment when the promised son is specifically the focus of attention. Surely Abram believed from the time that God had first revealed to him. His actions prove his faith. As I mentioned, he left Ur, traveled to the place that God had indicated, and he forsook the idolatry of his fathers, and he worshipped the one true God. He had faith. But, Haig goes on to uh, highlight for us, Moses intends us to see that Abram's faith was cast upon God in a particular fashion in connection with the promise of a son. And thus we have the all-important verse, quote, and he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness, end quote. Okay, so here's what I'm trying to teach us tonight. The influencers of Paul's day were using Abraham as their model of faith. They believed themselves as natural Jews, as physical covenant members, those who had been physically circumcised as children, as babies. They believed that Abraham was the primary model of faith in their in their theology. And um, as such, they were using physical circumcision, which is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant that we're going to read about in Genesis 17. They were using the influencers of Paul's day, his detractors, they were using Abraham as the proof that Gentiles must also become physically circumcised if they too want to be counted as covenant members within the people group of Israel. So you see how this is working? They, the influencers, were looking to the Genesis text just like Paul was, 
And I believe that the influencers were saying, look, Abraham is, is the one. He was reckoned as righteous because he put his faith in God and he became circumcised. And circumcision is the act of faith that proved, you know, it's, it's the vindication of his faith. And it was his actions that showed that he was a genuine covenant member. And therefore, uh, speaking in the language of the influencers, you Gentiles who wish to be counted among the people of Israel as righteous, if you also want to be tzedakah, like it said in Genesis 15:6, if you also want to be counted as righteous, right? You too must be physically circumcised, just like Genesis 17 commands us, just like we are physically circumcised. You too must be physically circumcised. Now, how do I know that this is the case? Because I read a, uh, Acts 15:1. And I read Acts 15, 6. What does it say there? It says that some men were coming down from, uh, some men were teaching the brothers that unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you can't be saved. Even the believing Pharisees were, were, were holding to that view. Unless they are circumcised and follow the, the, the commandments of Moses, they can't be, circ they can't be saved. So uh, 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 salvation was hinging on physical circumcision in Paul's day. And yet Paul took a careful look again at Genesis 15:6 and in in light of Genesis 17 where Abraham does receive physical circumcision and Paul noticed something very glaring a glaring omission in the theology of the influencers of his day and that was that God did in fact reckon Abraham as righteous and in fact Abraham did receive physical circumcision yes that's true so that part that feature of the of the influencers theology was correct Abraham was a righteous person he was recognized as righteous, and he was physically circumcised, yes, but, but, and the all-important feature for Paul was, when, when was he reckoned as righteous? And for Paul, he's going to focus his attention on Genesis 15, 6, because it is prior to physical circumcision that Abraham was reckoned as righteous. And this shoots a hole into the theology of the influencers. In other words, it's the, it's the nail that, what do we say, it's the nail that, that puts the nails the lid on the coffin. It shoots a hole in their theology because, no, Gentiles don't have to be physically circumcised to be counted as righteous. They can, like Papa Abraham, if they cast their faith on God in the same way that Abraham did, they too can be counted as righteous prior to physical circumcision. Therefore, they can be counted as righteous as Gentiles. They don't have to become physical Jews, legally recognized Jews. And that's really the whole thrust of, of Paul's teaching in Genesis, um, sorry, in Galatians 6. Let's try that one more time. In, in yeah, Galatians 6, as well as the Romans uh, 4 correlated passage. So the point I'm trying to make for us is that uh, Abraham's faith was not also, uh, was not merely just a generic faith in God. I think his faith was interacting with God the Devar of Deny, the Word of the Lord, because this was a pre-incarnate Yeshua. It was a, it was a, it was a dialogue with the Word of the Lord, who is the Lord. Right? Please remember to read uh, John one one and John one fourteen all over again. Most of us have them memorized. In the word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, if the Word was with God, but yet was God, then the Word of the Lord that Abraham is interacting with in um, Genesis fifteen six is in fact the Lord Himself. But yet, John tells us in John 1.14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is the Word that dwelt among us? It is Yeshua. Therefore, we know that the Word of the Lord is Messiah. 
So I think I can say that safely, and I don't think there's a Christian out there who would disagree with me. The word of the Lord is the Lord himself. The word of the Lord is Yeshua. He is the word of the Lord made flesh. And therefore, Abraham can believe in the Lord, believe in the Lord for a promised son, believe in the Lord that his offspring would be as numerous, that he would not only have a son, but that they would be as numerous as the sands of the sea, as the stars of the sky. The same promise is going to be repeated to Isaac. The same promise is going to be repeated to Jacob later on, if we go back and read the text. So this is the promise of multiplicity. This promise that we know is comes to fullness, not just in Isaac, the promised son, the but the quintessential son is Yeshua himself. He is the son who brings all of the promises to pass. Amen? Amen. So in conclusion to this section, we see clearly that Abraham chose to lay hold of the promise given in, way back in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. That's where the beginning of this promise of multiplicity uh, is starting to begin there. It's, it's starting to be fleshed out. And I think that Abraham sees Finally, when he interacts with the word of Lord in Genesis 15, 6, which he didn't in Genesis 12, we just have God appear to Abraham, or I'm sorry, God uh, spoke to Abraham, but yet not God or the, the Vader Adonai appearing to Abraham. So I think it's God who, who clearly I believe it's God who, who makes this special uh, house visit, as it were, to Abraham in the, word, in the person of Yeshua, the pre-incarnate Yeshua in Genesis 15, 6. Uh, Genesis 15, 1 through 6. And I think it's there that Abraham's eyes are open supernaturally. The monergistic work takes place. And he finally casts his faith on the word of the Lord in connection with the promised son. And we see at the heart of such a promise a glimpse of the Messiah who would bring it to pass, I believe. In fact, later on, as Abraham uh, takes Isaac up the mountain, Mount Moriah, to slay him, we, f we find another place where Abraham sees... The promised son, again, I think he sees in a vision, we, if we were to go back and read uh, the passage, um, uh, I think it's Genesis, what is it, Genesis 22, if I have, uh, from memory. If we were to go back and read that, um, we would find uh, Abraham interacting with uh, the angel of the Lord again, but also um, Abraham not slaying his son because he sees... I think he sees Calvary, to be honest with you. If we if we kind of put it together with Yeshua's words where Abraham saw my day and Abraham re saw my day and rejoiced, right? Abraham rejoiced to see my day. What does that all mean? How did Abraham see Yeshua's day? I think uh, Abraham saw the crucifixion in in advance. God showed him the future uh, that his son that his quintessential promised son would also die and bring this promise to the rest of the world. So anyway, that's a lot to, uh, to, to chew on at one moment, so we'll stop there. Next week, we're going to turn to uh, Galatians 3.10, and we're going to start working through this lengthy section in my commentary. It's easily, I think, 10 or 15 or 20 pages, almost just, just on Galatians 3.10. This idea of works of the law, the curse that accompanies the works of the law, and everyone not doing everything that's written in the book of the law. What does that all mean? We'll turn to that next week. But for now... Let's close down this week's commentary. And uh, for those of you who are with me in the live class, stay with me after the closing prayer, and we'll entertain about 45 minutes of um, chat, and uh, we can ask questions and things like that. Okay? Let's close. Abba, I bless your name. I thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to Papa Abraham so long ago. For indeed, Lord, his faith became real. It was actual. It wasn't imagined. And it wasn't a generic faith in you, God, like 
many in Judaism are saying, that all we need is faith in God, like Abraham had faith in God. No, Lord, we know that it's not merely generic faith in you that is saving faith. It's actually objective faith in the Son of God. It's not subjective, it's objective. We must have the faith in Messiah that Abraham had. We, too, must place our faith in the Son of God who has revealed himself to be the Son of God. We must place our faith in Yeshua if we wish to come into the genuine and lasting covenant relationship that you have envisioned all along for us to have. Indeed, Abraham did not have mere um, subjective generic faith in God like so many, uh, say, Muslims or, or Jews or some Christians are even purporting. It's not generic faith in God that saves. It is specific, focused, objective faith in the word of the Lord, in the promises that are only actualized through Yeshua the Son. It is faith in Him that causes us to come into the relationship with God that is um, spoken about in the Apostolic Scriptures. Indeed, Lord, if we do not see the finished work of Messiah as we cast our faith in God, then indeed we're missing the picture that God intended for us to see all along. And that's why he sent the Son. That's why he sent the Messiah. That's why he sent the Spirit so that we can understand these words. Thank you, Lord, that we have the finished words of Messiah preserved for us in our text in the Apostolic Scriptures. Indeed, like traditional Judaism today, if we neglect studying the finished words of Messiah, if we neglect studying the apostolic scriptures, we're not going to see the final picture. We're not unrolling the scroll far enough to read exactly what it is that God would have us to read. And indeed, we're not going to see Messiah. He will continually be veiled to us. Help us, Lord, to continue to press into these words with a saving knowledge, with not just... Um, the Messiah in view, but would also a view towards walking and continued um, sanctification and holiness. And in fact, we want to uh, do as Yeshua said, we want to um, uh, not just be hearers of the word, we want to be doers also. We want to, uh, what did he say? Um, um, uh, uh, don't be uh, those who just uh, hear my words, Lord. Uh, blessed is the man who does these things. Blessed is the man who walks in them. Uh, we want to be th uh, those type of people. Uh, continue to uh, be with us this week as we um, interact with one another. Uh, keep us safe. Uh, keep us healed, Lord. Thank you for all of these things. B'shem Yeshua, Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written 
produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.